This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it's a great privilege to be sitting here with Dan Strange, the only person, so far as I know, in the whole of Oak Hill who has a whole Marvel film devoted to him. Yes. Is that true so far? And a doctor. And also my dad was called Steve. And I think the Marvel character is Steve Strange. There's a funny story. I'll come on to a funny story how I, I ended up with that name shortly, but I'll, I'll leave you for a bit. With, <laughs> you can... So there is no, no one else on the faculty here. Though. Is Matthew Bingham Captain America? Is that is that happening yet? No, although interesting, his middle name apparently is uh, Chandler. So Chandler Bing, um, uh, as in Friends. So uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Fantastic. So uh, and you're you're teaching. You're you're. What is your role? Your yeah. So I'm the, I'm the college director, and I'm also a tutor in. Uh, culture religion and this strangely titled thing called public theology so christian engagement in society uh, but yeah I'm, I'm the college director so my kind of day job is uh, uh running the college in that sense yeah mm, good gracious and you've written a number of of books which have been extremely well acclaimed and which have been very strategically orientated towards serving the church in issues which are uh, where the church really needs to be served. Um, the, I'm thinking particularly of your "There at Rock is not as our rock." Yes, uh, the extraordinary uh, theology. Uh, uh, would you call that apologetics, or is it? Uh, is there a heading you can give? That? Yeah, well, I think that that book is called um, in theology. It's probably known as the theology of religion. So it's what is the Christian understanding of other religions, just as Islam would have a place for Christ. What's the Christian place for Islam? Um, and looking at the Bible uh, in terms of uh, exegesis and how we understand passages, theology, um, what does the Bible say? What's the coherent message about other religions from a Christian perspective? Right. Um, so that work uh, was um, done over many years to try and get some uh, uh, sophisticated thinking from a reformed perspective on that question. Yes, yeah. it's, and I, I must say it, it is a book for our time because we are in a city here where huge numbers of people are respectful, monotheistic, family orientated socially conservative nice people yeah who don't fit the model of if someone's not a christian their life is probably a mess yes the people who are living around us we're trying to plant a church on a housing estate in east london most of the people are bangladeshi muslims and they're nice yeah and they're respectable and they're respectful and uh, the whole idea that oh your life's falling apart they, they wouldn't have any room for that and also they have they are certain that Islam is right. But if you ask them any questions about Islam, they generally know very little about it. Yeah. And uh, it can be disarming if you're trying to trying to meet these people uh, unless you know, well, the Bible tells me. The Bible tells me yeah. that people, they are people looking for satisfaction. Yeah. The Bible tells me they, are, they, will, they will recognize that there is something of the divine, but they won't, they suppress the truth yeah, yeah. And, ex and exchange it with something else i think part of the reason for the book is saying the bible has a very sophisticated way of understanding who humans are and how humans work we call it anthropology or theological anthropology and one of the reasons for writing the book was to say when we're dealing with other religions there isn't a kind of a completely new anthropology we have to make up what i'm trying to do is link what the bible says about people who worship in, in classical kind of traditional world religions it's the same kinds of questions that your average non-interested secular human 
might ask and it's the same questions they're, they're seen in different ways so i think the moving now from looking at world religions to just uh, your average secular brit it's the same kinds of questions you have to contextualize it slightly differently uh, but the passion i'll come on to is from from the other religions is something about my background as well yeah mm, extraordinary yes now you because you, you are a person of multiple nations are you not yeah so my dad was from guyana in south america and was born in a town near a place called Demerara, where you get the sugar from. And so uh, he left the village when he was uh, young. And then Guyana was still a British Republic. So he ended up, I think, via Cyprus joining the army. But anyway, he ended up in the UK and married my mum, who was from Yorkshire. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm half Guyanese and I'm half Indo-Guyanese. If you know anything about Guyana, there's a kind of an Indian population which would have been slaves brought over by the British three generations ago and then a West Indian population. And that's why Guyana is still counted as a West Indian nation when we play cricket. There's always a test in, in, in Guyana. So, yeah, so my gran, my dad's mum, was a Hindu. My, my grandfather was a Hindu. And I suppose that really got the journey about thinking about other faiths, thinking, yeah, I, I have... I have family who come from a Hindu background. What do I think about their faith? Mm. What do I think about them needing to hear about the Lord? Yes. Um, and that kind of got the journey going on this issue of what does Christianity have to say about other religions? Yes. Uh, you talk in the book about how you you showed up at a, at a meeting and your dad knew the songs. Yeah. So when my, um, yeah, so my dad, who was kind of, I suppose, an, a cultural Hindu agnostic, really. But when my gran was 70, we went over and all, by then all the, all the family had moved from Guyana over to Toronto and New York. But my dad, out of nowhere, when the pandit, the priest came and did some stuff with my gran my dad knew all the songs i mean he hadn't we'd never i mean we'd we'd been brought up in the 80s on saturday morning television in the uk they used to have these like long serializations of the bhagavad gita and other kind of big hindu epics and my dad used to kind of make us watch them eating egg and potato curry and all kinds of different things so that, that was our kind of upbringing but my dad never really he wasn't practicing in that way in fact he used to come and hear, hear me preach but that was the interesting thing about his background and this is where the, the name strange because my dad strangely enough chose the name strange his name was prashad and so when he came over to this country for some reason it went with him to his grave he never he was very touchy about talking about it he chose the name strange so my mum and dad when i was going to be born they were going to call me davindra so i could be having this interview ben and i could be davindra prashad and i'm dan strange we don't know whether it's the marvel character dr strange whether dr strange loved the film by peter sellers was around at that time we do not know it's it's we have many constructions but here i am dan strange there you go and and how did you come to hear the gospel from this extraordinary background so my my mum's a believer and she uh, went to an anglican church but there wasn't much youth there this was in south end on sea in essex and so she took us to the local baptist church and i joined the boys brigade uniformed organization uh, others are available and got really in, involved then and then uh, i was converted at 16 and it really was you know having heard the gospel lots of times i went to the morning service heard it as normal washed over me in the evening no big effort the same gospel preached by our minister and realized this is true and wow. got on my knees with him and asked jesus into my life uh, and I've always been, I suppose, quite questioning, a questioning soul. So that then prompted me to start thinking I'd probably been a, a, someone who asked lots of questions about Christianity. And uh, when I became a Christian, then those questions have continued, which said, oh, I'm, I, I want to go and study theology at university. So that's why I went and did. Mm, fantastic. But for, uh, you, and your first degree, were, you know, was that at Bristol? You yeah, studied? Bristol, Bristol Uni, Theology and Religious Studies degree, a very, um, <laughs> a very kind of uh, liberal not bible teaching department and some very kind of strange experiences it was it was tough 
being an evangelical and being probably quite a young, naive evangelical sitting in the same place, being very earnest. Probably I do things a little bit differently now, but it was a good training ground in terms of working through um, some academic theological issues. Yes and um, uh, purifying my faith, I'd say. Yes, yeah. Well, that's a lovely term, yes, which requires various uh, levels of heat and pressure. Yes, and also pr the providence that you know that God is has a plan for that, because if I hadn't have had those negative experiences, I wouldn't have been prepared for the next thing that I did, was w which was working with uh, for UCCF for five years, just working with theology students, so wow. evangelicals who had chosen to go to... A, a kind of a mainstream university and being able to do student ministry with them because I'd been through that experience both undergraduate and postgraduate um, and, and there were some great things about Bristol one of my my PhD supervisor a guy called Professor Gavin DeCosta is a conservative Catholic theologian and I really went to Bristol because of him I knew at 18 or 19 I wanted to go and study with him he's the kind of the preeminent theologian in the Catholic world on Christianity's relationship to other religions so going to study with him was great but yeah that that whole experience prepared me for the ministry that I did with uh, at UCCF then. And prior to that, you were in Southend where you were at the same school. I now hear not only as Adrian Reynolds, but as our good friend Rob Scott. Yes, we, we were in the same class. <laughs> we were in the same form. He was Scott and I was strange. So we were near the register. Oh. I always say to Rob, though, that at that time I went to the Christian Union and I thought Rob wasn't a very good Christian because he always went and played football. So there was Adrian Reynolds banging away on this little Casio keyboard <laughs> and looking out the window, Rob Scott playing football. And then I thought, what happened? What happened to Rob Scott? And then finally, suddenly he turns up at St. Helens. <laughs> and now he comes and teaches Islam at Oak Hill. And yeah. we're good friends. We're involved yes. in some projects together. Yeah. So, yeah, it's brilliant. It's amazing how these things happen. Yes. South, South End on Sea is not really been a hotbed <laughs> for kind of, you know, great reformed evangelical Christianity. Yes. But, um, yeah, there's uh, three people very involved in, in this yes. in this world. I believe he's also been grateful for the perspective you've brought. This term, subversive fulfilment, yes. is a term which is attached itself to you but it's uh it's uh, well, well, i've attached to it <laughs> but it's a thrilling concept which perhaps i should ask you to give us a little bit of a an introduction yes to. so the term subversive fulfillment the term it's not my term it was used by a very famous missiologist called hendrik kramer and hendrik kramer was involved in these huge uh, global missionary conferences at the beginning of the 21st century in Edinburgh and then in Tambaran in, in India. And it was a time when people were starting to say, maybe Jesus, maybe Christianity is a kind of a, maybe other religions are stepping stones to Jesus. So they used to talk about how Christianity was the fulfillment of Islam or Buddhism. And uh, Hendrik Kramer came along and said, no, this isn't true. Jesus is something completely different. He's not just a kind of, it's not a smooth progress. Christianity presents, uh, or it's something completely other. It presents a crisis. But he says in one essay, and he only uses this phrase once, he says, if you want to talk about fulfillment, we can talk about the gospel as being contradictive or subversive fulfillment. And the idea is, is that at the same time, the gospel both connects and confronts every religion, every worldview, every ideology. There's always a connection, but there's always confrontation. And the way that I, I try to try and explain it biblically is in 1 Corinthians 1, we hear very clearly that the cross is offensive. It is a contradiction to the way that people view the world. So Christ crucified is an offensive message. It's the opposite of what the world thinks about everything. It's a contradiction. Mm. I always remember I've only I did one I've only done one Radio 4 program this program Beyond Belief with Ernie Ray. 
and they wanted to do something on hell and i've I've done some thinking and writing on hell and they got me they got a uh, a liberal kind of catholic theologian and then a liberal university lecturer who believed in hell but not in any way that i thought was related to the bible anyway we were talking and they were really offended at the idea that i could believe in judgment you know how can you believe in judgment it's just like the medieval belief but what was interesting, they were even more offended. They were offended by judgment, but they were even more offended when I spoke about grace. You mean that someone on their deathbed could believe in Jesus and be saved? So the gospel both offends people who believe in judgment and offends people who believe in grace. That's wow. the that's the contradiction of the cross. Wow. You know, where wrath and mercy meet. But, and this is the big but, the gospel doesn't only confront, the gospel connects. And in that 1 Corinthians 1 passage... Paul says that, you know, there are two types of people. Paul makes a distinction between two ethnicities, Jews who look for power and Greeks look for wisdom. So Paul says we preach Christ crucified and Jews have a social imaginary or they have a, a way of their hopes and dreams are fulfilled in power. Greeks look for wisdom. Now, the passage doesn't say we preach Christ crucified and it doesn't care what you guys think. Why does Paul make that distinction? Because a few verses on, he says that, Jesus Christ is the power of God. He is the wisdom of God. So he he connects as well as confronts. So the gospel both connects and confronts. Now, it's, it confronts in a way that the Jews and the Greeks don't expect. But Paul can't be accused of having a felt needs gospel, even though he says, Jews, you're looking for power. Jesus is power. Greeks, you're looking for wisdom. Jesus is wisdom in a subversive way. But he makes the connection. Right. And so what I want to encourage Christians to do is to say, Jews look for power. Greeks look for wisdom. What do what does our culture look for in all of its different forms? And how does the gospel both connect and confront? And that's exactly what we see in Paul in Acts 17, which is kind of a, mm. a lived example from 1 Corinthians 1. Yeah. Paul goes to the objects of worship. He says, look, you're, you're worshipping an unknown God. Mm. What you believe in ignorance, I'm now going to proclaim to you. Mm. It's subversive fulfillment. Yes, yes. When you quote Acts 17 in your book, you seem to put your own translation of that of that very passage. Because it, where he says, what you that which you worship un, it was unknown, this I proclaim to you, ESV. But you said, you worship this in ignorance. You don't know what it is. This, And you draw out. Yes, and, and there's also that great word that Paul says, uh, men of Athens, people of Athens, I see you're very religious. Yes. And that word that in the Greek that Paul uses, he only it's only used once. It's almost as Paul's made it up. Right. Um, and it could mean, to commentators go both ways. Does it mean, is Paul taking the mickey out of them? Is he saying, you're very sus superstitious? Right. Or is he affirming them? Yes. And there's a sense that subversive fulfillment says he's doing both. <laughs> he's making a contact with them, but he's saying from here because i have to start somewhere i'm now going to go from the inside to show how i'm going to work out the gospel from here even though this is idolatry mm. and that's what subversive fulfillment is it's saying the idols because we're worshiping beings we worship yes. something idols always have a, a grain of truth in them but they distort the truth and that's why all other worldviews, other ideologies, other religions, they're like a kind of, one writer likens them to a kind of a, a nightmare, a fantastical dream. Dreams are reality that have been distorted and perverted. And uh, that's the basis. There's always a basis of truth. Um, but there's, right. it's suppressed truth. Right, right. And subversive fulfillment just tries to talk about that in a way that confronts and connects. Yes. We, we quote those very extraordinary privilege. One of the great privileges you have being in this city is not only is there some of the most extraordinary church history in the world in the city, but there's the British Museum. And whenever we take a, I take a tour through the British Museum, like yesterday, I was standing in front of the stones in front of which Paul said, 
men of Athens. <laughs> oh wow! Yes. Well, I mean, I've, 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 we, we've got missionary friends in Athens, and whenever we go over there to visit them, they always say, "Where do you want to go?" And I say, "I want to go to the, the Areopagus." Yeah. So we kind of clamber up there, and I, I say, and in something a book I'm writing at the moment, I make this point: Greek health and safety isn't what British health and safety is. So I've taken my kids, and I'm trying to be Paul on the Areopagus, which is just you have to use your imagination. It's a big like random slab of rock; you wouldn't know it from anything. But I'm also trying to be Paul and watch the kids don't fall over the back. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a very strange experience oh yes yes yeah. but to be there to think yeah this yes, is where paul so, gave this sermon it's well, amazing that's it but we can do that in london yeah. it's a strange yeah, thing yeah, yeah. go there on a on a friday evening when no one else is there and you're standing in front of stones in front of which these words were spoken but this is a thrilling thing also because we who are trying to reach uh, muslims in london which is of course i think most christians in london now probably will, will meet muslims mm. and find, well, what mm. do i do with this people who have tried to interact with islam you tend to find that you then start finding their theology comes out very strongly uh, so for example you you get the conspiracy theory theology wherein uh, the muslims are all trying to do this and there's a big conspiracy behind it actually the people i know who've worked the closest with muslims confirm what something i've observed which is it's actually rather chaotic yeah well the bible told me that i didn't need to have the experience mm -hmm. and what's striking is you find people are trying to talk about how are we going to reach these people and they're coming from experience but you've come from a biblical perspective and said, no, the, the, the Bible says this is what's going to happen. Yeah. They are worshipping beings. A person is a being looking for satisfaction. Yeah. The Bible told me yeah. that. And, and, and also it's the Islam is interesting because and I make this point in the book. Historically, Christianity has always seen Islam as a Christian heresy. As in, there's a there's a particular relationship between Islam and Christianity, probably evidence that Muhammad came into contact with some kind of yeah. heretical Christianity, which I do think makes Islam peculiar in its in the way we engage, because sometimes you think we're so close, but it's so far away. It is monotheistic in a sense, <laughs> but it's oneness, yes. not diversity. Yes. They have a place for Christ, but at the end of the day, it's, it is it is works righteousness versus grace. Absolutely. And so um, recognising that is, is important. And again, I, I think you're right, the chaos, the, the, the chaotic nature, but also the, the so many strands of Islam as well, meaning I think Rob would say this as well, you're, you're dealing with, you need to deal with every single Muslim. Absolutely. And now, now, of course, one has to generalise or, or else you couldn't do any kind of teaching or, or generalisation as a gift from God. But to caricature or to presume that you think you know where a particular Muslim is coming from we need to do the research and, and the hard work but that yeah. human one-to-one -one encounters you'll see every, every muslim is absolutely different. now one of your heroes jh baving yeah spoke to the heart of this magnificently in the piece which i'm delighted to see you because it's my one of my favorite things baving says this whole thing is i don't deal with islam i deal with each individual yes, muslim exactly. but also that's rather exciting because the gospel meets me as a person it doesn't meet an organization that's that's the difference between yeah. the gospel and roman catholicism this is where you sign up this is where you have this experience no, the, the fact is the gospel meets you because uh, Jesus is a person and you come to know him and that's yes. what this cross was all about. Yeah. Now, I'd like to ask you, um, because we're in a city where awesome church histories happen. Now, who is someone who is, uh, have, I, have I just named the person you would, would yeah, say? Yeah, I mean, J.H. Bavink is a, has been a real influence for me. So in, if you don't know, there's a very famous reformed theologian called Herman Bavink yeah. who wrote this huge set of dogmatic theology that uh, we, we find very helpful. This was his nephew, yeah. uh, J.H., and uh, he was a missionary who went to Indonesia, ended up teaching at the Free University of Amsterdam, um, in the 50s and, and, the, and the 60s were, was writing and wrote what was for a long time the kind of st 
standard reform missiological textbook, An Introduction to the Science of Missions. He also gave a series of lectures that were posthumously um, The Church Between Temple and Mosque. And I've just found his writing, it, it's very poetic writing. It's very pregnant with possibility. Uh -huh. And I think he writes really well. He understands people. And I've just found his understanding of of the bible and his real expertise in understanding other religions as a wonderful combination i think he's a great writer now unfortunately still a lot of his stuff is still in dutch and i don't speak dutch i wish that's one thing i would have loved to have done now theological dutch so i'm waiting on some of the more obscure stuff to be translated but the jh babink reader came out a few years ago and uh, yeah i mean uh, certainly i've dedicated my big book on other religions in his spirit and on his shoulders because i in some ways i want my my mission is to try and popularize and bring his work up to date uh, for 2019 mm. that's my goal mm. so he, he's been a real inspiration i think oh he's yeah I, I i did some work for omf a few years ago yeah. and i was just reading some they wanted some research done and as i looked in all the missionary books they i noticed they're all quoting jh bavink Everyone's quoting George Bavink, and they're all drawing out this superb point he's making about uh, if I look down on a Muslim for his his inconsistency, I've immediately lost my authority because I didn't get saved by being consistent. Yeah, I didn't get if I look down on a, on a Buddhist for being foolish, then I've uh, lost my opportunity because I didn't become a Christian because I was wise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and so you, you said you go in as a as a humble person, you go in, and therefore you can meet the person, which is rather exciting because that's the work of the local church yeah. and in anyone who has read a bible or looked at anything in church history the heroes are people who are based in local churches yeah. and serving them yeah and uh and that's uh, and that's what you've tried to do in your writings with the that you're trying to serve the church so would you say is bavink uh, your main hero is there are there others who yeah been i think real... from the reform miss missiological side i think the other person who's been a real influence is is the dutch apologist uh, um, american cornelius van til oh, yes and in the way that I um, understand apologetics and the apologetic task, I've been really influenced by Van Til. And again, another mission is to try. I think sometimes Van Til, he's not the easiest to read. Sometimes it's not as accessible as it could have been. But trying to popularise Van Til in the way that, say, someone you will know, Bill Edgar has tried to do, a guy called Ted Turnell, who wrote a book on popular culture and presuppositional apologetics which is what van til van til's the godfather of the godfather of this school of apologetics called presuppositionalism which for me biblically is none other than exposing people's idols and showing them the lord jesus that's all it is absolutely um, and van til's been a real influence and i think you can see it traced down i mean in terms of uh, well what's interesting is to see that van til was at westminster he influenced a guy or he was around with a guy called harvey con yes Harvey Conn was a huge influence on Tim Keller. Uh -huh. So there's a kind of a family there of which I'd put myself in, in terms of yeah. that uh, presuppositional school of apologetics. So yeah. Van Til's been a real influence, yeah. Yes. Well, there have been people who've served us by dissecting their thought. John Frame has yes, written well. Again, yeah. And more recently, Scott Oliphant's book, um, Covenantal, Covenantal Apologetics. apologetics. Yeah, he helps you to understand that no one is neutral. Yeah. We all come into this with a presupposed idea of what's yes, true. Yes, yeah. I still think there is, though, there's still... Um, there's still a kind of a almost sometimes a stratospheric level that the presuppositional apologetics operates at. And what I want to try and do is bring it down to normal things, popular culture, where people are living. Mm. And to see that it's not just the um, our presuppositions are not just what we think. They're predilections. They're what we love. It's going yes. back to your point about loves. Yes. And so it's a kind of a very Augustinian view of that we are 
worshipping creatures. The heart is at the centre of the human person. It's not just what we think, not just what we feel, yeah. but the whole, whole our imagination. And I, th- I do think presuppositional apologetics can capture the imagination and the whole person. Um, and that's what how I try to teach apologetics here at Oak Hill. Yeah, I like that way you start your book with not just Homo sapiens, but first Homo adorans, the man loving. That is what man is first, yeah. and, we, and that of course is that cuts to the heart because each person you know in your life that is the key variable, yes. and they know it very keenly because yeah. they've invested their heart either in something which didn't connect. Or it did connect and it wasn't worth it. I'll tell you something. I've got the answer. I'll tell you the one who will never let you go. I'll tell you yeah. the one who says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And I'm not worth praising just today and tomorrow and to the rest of your life. Yeah. But I'm worth praising yeah. forever. And that's that's a message which, well, isn't it a delight to be in a, in a time where characters like Tim Keller and so on are, are, are drawing this back to people's yeah, attention? Exactly. Think, oh, yeah. And the great sucks. thing is in <laughs> some ways, a world faith, a world religion does that. that There's so many things already that you can kind of presuppose the the place of the transcendent or whatever but you can do this exactly the same analysis for as, as i said before your person who isn't interested in christianity any religion would call themselves completely yes. secular yes. the biblical anthropology is exactly the same they are people who love now you you have to be more canny you have to excavate it but i suppose some of the work that i'm moving on to now and the, the work i would do on kind of cultural apologetics here is saying that Everyone is like this. Even what we think are the most banal cultural artifacts that people make can be investigated and you can connect and confront the gospel. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah, because that is the nature of the gospel. It's the it's the one message which <laughs> it transcends. Yeah. Now, um, so is that is it that to which you are up presently? Is the writing of that, or what's what's? Yeah, new? so what's I um, I have a book coming out. It's called Plugged In, and it's precisely that. I've been teaching a course on cultural apologetics here for ten years, and it's a kind of a it's meant to be a very accessible description uh, with worked examples about how we might do this confronting and connection with the gospel. So uh, I'm really pleased with it. Tim Keller's written a, a really nice forward. Bill Edgar's uh, been involved in commending it. And what we do is we look at the the theology of culture some of the stuff that we've been talking about today but then i've been setting an essay for 10 years here at oak hill 14 years actually where students get to theologically analyze any cultural artifact that they want to and saying how does the gospel how does the christian worldview connect with this so i've chosen some of the best for four worked examples so we've got adult coloring books japanese toilets zombies and bird watching (laughs) so the last four chapters of the book saying you can do you can do this or what i would love christians to do throughout the uk and in the world is to take this kind of method of how we enter into someone's world we explore what the what the idols are we expose the idols and then we evangelize with the gospel and this book's meant to be helping them it's called plugged in oh superb Um, that's that's fantastic i love the way you're trying to serve the church trying to get yeah. Trying to serve the church to get on with a large part of what it's put there for. Now, fascinating that uh, when they started the Gospel Coalition, I was fascinated to hear when Keller was sort of essentially putting it on the red carpet saying, and this is what it is, he was saying it, it, it's trying to help people in their locations to see what are the idols in this area yeah, so that we can get to them. I thought that was fascinating because yeah. he wasn't just saying, let's start a website. You know, saying, let's find out, let's find ways that we can, let's find what the idols are so that we can get to them. I love that. Yeah. Because he's, uh, he's on the front foot with that. Yeah. What are the object, again, Paul, what are the objects, what are the objects of, of worship? And yes. I think if you, it, it's very easy to, to, to start doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sweet. Now, um, 
So you've got you've had some insights into things which are, uh, come from an eternal perspective, which will be of which are prioritizing the service of the church. Could I ask you what would your advice be? I think the confidence to know that God's story, the narrative that we've been talking about, is big enough and true enough to encompass every other little story that people have and trying to not just think about the bible or with the bible but to think through the bible yes there's a really excellent book that's come out in the last year by a guy called christopher watkin called thinking through creation and he makes that point that the patterns that are set out in genesis 1 have the potential to help us solve even the most difficult social issues that we face and i think to use our imagination, especially as I think as conservative reformed evangelicals, to use our imagination to capture people's hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that that would be my advice. And just to keep on practicing, how do we do this? How do we connect and confront, connect and confront? How do we subversely really fulfill? I don't think it comes natural to us. And I don't think I'm the best. I, in some ways, I sometimes liken myself to a football manager who didn't have a great playing career, but he's a pretty decent manager. I'm, I'm not very good, as my kids will tell you, at doing the analysis itself. I like thinking about it. That's probably my one of my gifts uh, to kind of step back. But we need Christians who are engaging to put everything under Christ. And that's what it is. It's about we love the Lord. We're ambassadors for him. We want to put everything under Christ's lordship. And so we need to think Christianly about everything. Mm. And if we do that, I think there's real hope. Well, thank you so much, Not Dr. Been Strange. A, thank it's you. been really fantastic to have this time with you and to hear your words. Pleasure. Enjoying being here. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.